This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. Well, we should probably move into Galatians now. Um, that way we can get something done here. In a class like this, inevitably something is going to get squeezed a little bit and not done due diligence towards it. And I think Galatians is going to be that thing for us. What is Luther's opinion on justification? <laughs> <laughs> I thought about asking this morning, so for Luther, was is the will bound? For <laughs> Is that yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes or no? Um, All the points. The good, the good thing I think about going over Galatians a little bit more quickly is just how much of it we're covering elsewhere in terms of the main concepts and themes and ideas. And the other side of it is just that this is one of Luther's most famous writings, so you'll probably naturally come into contact with it more easily if you want to. And return to it whenever we preach Galatians. Yeah, exactly. Um, unless you just have a deep and abiding love for the antinomian disputations, uh, you won't just nat naturally turn to it. But Galatians is an easy thing to I say. I will now. You will now, yeah. But it's always easy to say, oh, what, is, what does Luther say on Galatians 4, 3 to 6, or yeah. something like that. Exactly. It's a disputation. Yeah. <laughs> So Galatians, this is the commentary that came out in 1535. Uh, Luther was lecturing on Galatians from, from 1531 to 1535. Um, this is not the early commentary that came out in 1519, I believe, which if you get the Luther's Works edition of the Galatians commentary, um, it's a two-volume deal. It's big. Um, and in the second volume, just about a third of it is the early commentary. So um, this commentary grew exponentially as Luther went throughout his life. Because the early commentary, it's just, you know, here's five sentences on each verse. He gets a little more loquacious by this point. He had nothing more to do than to write more stuff. <laughs> yeah. I will say, if you are going to use the Galatians commentary often. Do not do, not do it with this version. Um, the reason for using this version is because it's one volume. Um, it's not awful. And you're, you know, we need to make sure that you could fit all your books in your bags as you came down here. Um, the Luther's Works edition is just much, much better. What about it is qualitatively different? The translation is much better. Um, like who did the translation? Was that, uh, was was that it, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, maybe? Oh, okay. <clears throat> I can't remember. He, he, he did so much of it. That's the name that's coming to me. But if it wasn't him, it was somebody else that was quality. Um, this is also abridged. <laughs> and as I was looking back through my notes, I taught Galatians at our church a while back. And I was looking through my notes on Luther. And I realized every now and then something is cut out, which I thought shouldn't have been cut out. Um, so that's just a note of 
That's also a little ironic that the English translation is by Erasmus Middleton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Erasmus Rotterdam Middleton. <laughs> um, we are actually going to get through all of the creed in the small catechism um, through just continuing to return to it. I think um, the first article of the creed here paints a nice backdrop to thinking about justification um, and, and how Luther thought about it. Um, <clears throat> so it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What does this mean? And, and if you can, just try to hear some of the justification language. I believe that God has created me together with all that exists. God has given me and still preserves my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all limbs and senses, reason and all mental faculties. In addition, God daily and abundantly provides shoes and clothing, food and drink, house and farm, spouse and children, fields, livestock, and all property, along with all the necessities and nourishment for this body and life. God protects me against all danger and shields and preserves me from all evil. And all this is done out of pure fatherly and divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness of mine at all. For all this I owe it to God to thank and praise, serve and obey Him. This is most certainly true. I, I think it's interesting that here when Luther goes to interpret the first article of the Creed, he does, he reaches for that language of justification. Um, why did God create? It's not because of merit or worthiness. It is because of pure fatherly and divine goodness and mercy. Um, and that, that points to the kind of link that Luther makes between creation and justification. Um, because the word that creates is the word that justifies. And the word justifies by creating. Um, so, Which might be why it's more properly said that in, in Luther's thought, justification is not just the grammar of soteriology, mm. it's the grammar of theology. It's the grammar of life. Yeah. Oh. You said justification is that grammar? Same. Yeah. yeah. It's the doctrine on which the church rises and falls. I think that's always been interesting because I remember, you know, taking a class on the Reformation in mm -hmm. seminary after I'd taken systematic theology and I remember thinking, that's so ridiculous. Yeah. And it was kind of scoffed at. Uh, by our classmates going, there's so many doctrines. The Trinity, the church doesn't rise and fall in the Trinity, but, but all of the doctrines are bound up in it. Yeah. And, uh, and Luther doesn't say justification is the on which the world rises and falls, but the church rises church. and falls, I think is very elucidating to what a lot of us have been saying about preaching of the word and <laughs> divine service, worship. Mm -hmm. and it's very... It's a very acute statement. I yeah. I mean, and, and just to tweak that in one way, I think Luther would say if you get rid of the doctrine of justification, then God wouldn't have created us. Because yeah. um, he's the justifying God. Mm -hmm. he, he is the one who is categorically a gift giver. Right. And that expresses itself in creation. Um, God is. Yeah, that's Romans yeah. 3.26. He's the just and the justifier. Yeah. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. those are attributes of God. Yeah. And that, that's where we get the sense that to be human is not to be something other than just one who is justified by faith, who in creation and in the word of justification is receiving all things solely out of that pure fatherly goodness. 
Um, you know, Bayer likes to draw a, um, a line between God's first words to humans, which is take and eat. And, or not, you know, the first words, but the first sort of thing that he gives is take and eat. And then what happens to us in the Lord's Supper? Take and eat. This is all um, just sheer gift. It's always God coming to you to give him um, to you. Um, There are a number of ways we could approach the um, Galatians commentary, and we can talk through the argument of it if you all want to. And by the argument, I mean that first sort of introduction that Luther gives. But I wonder if by now that is clear, because so much of it is the distinction between active and passive righteousness. So if that is um, good to you, we can keep going. But if there's any interest or hesitancy, we can we can stay there. I feel, I feel like chapter two is kind of the linchpin chapter. Mm-hmm. But I'm verbose, my classroom dominator. So somebody else talk. I was wondering if it might be good to start by having you read um, pages sixty-one to sixty-three and thinking about how Paul interprets um, what happens with Peter and Antioch. Yes. So let's... In regards to active and passive righteousness? Or are we moving beyond that? We're moving. Well, I mean... I, okay, here's, here's the thing I'll say about active and passive righteousness. Luther thinks that argument, that distinction, is what structures everything. That is the argument of Galatians. Um, Paul preached that you are justified by faith in Christ, and then teachers came along and said, no, you also need the law. You also need um, to be showing these good works, particularly ceremonial good works, but also moral good works. And the way Luther describes that is by saying these teachers came in and they confused the distinction between active and passive righteousness. Um, So we now, just like they then, have to constantly be returned to this distinction that in our, in our passive righteousness, which is our righteousness before God, uh, we are solely receptive. Um, we are like dry earth that cannot grow anything until God reigns on us His righteousness from above. Um, and then it's only from that working on us that we can then have any true act of righteousness before our neighbor. Um, Luther says that both kinds of righteousness are good gifts of God. So passive righteousness is, or active righteousness is never distinguished um, from passive in the sense of its giftedness, nor in the sense of its um, necessity. He says we need to have both as Christians. Uh, insofar as you have received everything from God, we should be seeking to give to others. And there again, you're not going to do it perfectly. Um, You're not even probably going to do it well. But that should be our movement outwards um, because we have nothing to work for before God. There's absolutely nothing to do there. So you are fully freed to seek out the good um, for others. Um, But the distinction here is always key in making sure that you never confuse those two things, that the, the stream never goes back up the waterfall. 
um, because the devil, as he says, will come along and he will afflict you, but you have to tell the devil, you don't belong in my conscience. Only Christ belongs here. Um, get out of the bed. Yeah, get out There's of the bed. There's only room for two. <laughs> exactly. Um, and he even uses the language of, you know, active and passive righteousness are as far apart as are earth and heaven. And that's the sort of big distinction you have to make. Yeah. He talks, I mean, all through the chapter 2 discourse, he keeps using the terms earth and heaven. We mm. don't want to bring the law to heaven, and we don't want to bring, or in some ways he's saying the gospel doesn't need to hit earth, and what he means is like the civic use of the law or how I'm reading it, but mm. he talks a lot about earth and heaven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and maybe you could tease that out for me a little bit. There's a, I mean, it feels like he's employing the terms in a lot of different ways, but I'd mm. love clarity around what you, what Luther means by heaven and earth in, in Galatians. And this is especially in chapter two, he's doing this. Yeah. Do you have, do you have any particular uh, reference? Yeah. Since you referenced heaven and earth, uh, page 62, it's the first full paragraph, middle of the way down. I'll read the whole paragraph. Contrary wise and civil policy, obedience to the law must be severely required. There, mu- there, nothing must be known as concerning the gospel, conscience, grace, remission of sins, heavenly righteousness, or Christ Himself, but most only with the law and the works thereof. If we mark well this distinction, neither the one nor the other shall pass its bounds, but the law shall abide without heaven, that is, without the heart and conscience, and the liberty of the gospel shall abide without the earth, that is, without the bodies and members thereof. Uh, and then name, and then down, uh, two paragraphs down. Where he says, this might not Paul suffer, and therefore he reproveth Peter, not to put him to any reproach, but to the end that he might again establish a plain distinction between these two, namely that the gospel justifieth in heaven and the law on earth. And then he keeps going further, and I'm thinking of a reference on page 72, but maybe that should suffice. So what do you think he's doing with... The, the language of heaven. That was just jarring, uh, namely that the gospel justifieth in heaven, and the parallelism, parallelism is consequently in the law justifieth on earth, so to mm. speak. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I mean, I understand the distinction that each have their domain, the law and gospel, but it's interesting. He actually is being so dichotomous as to apply it to heaven and apply it to earth. Is he really just, is it as simple as eternal life, active righteousness? Civil life, passive righteousness. Is it that's a good way Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. I got this mixed up. I got this mixed up. Sorry. I yeah, I do think it, in a lot of ways is that simple. It's it's just pointing to the extreme disjunction between these two ways of thinking about our lives, and insofar as we look to heaven and we have this new life in Christ, which is in heaven. Um, we know that we can't let the law in there at all. Like the law has nothing to do for us in heaven in, in this sort of manner of discourse. Um, but once you are not looking at that anymore and you're thinking just about how I live my life as a good you know, cobbler or a good you know, homemaker or something, that's when he's saying, it's all about civil policy. <laughs> it's all about um, Aristotle's ethics and um, growing and learning in civil righteousness. Yeah, you know. and Luther had a pretty big imagination for the role of princes in, mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. Often appealed to them. He would say, am I correct in saying this is kind of how his two kingdoms theology gets developed, where he'd say, it's not my province. My province is the realm of the church and the gospel. Which always feels weird to me as a reform guy who, you know, Kuiper, you know, there is not one square inch of the universe with which Jesus does not say mine. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, it's been developed inappropriately to say that Luther said, um, you know, the only thing I can say is something about the spiritual world and I have nothing to do with the actual material life of people because probably more important than the doctrine of the two kingdoms is the, the, is the doctrine of the orders of creation where it says God has placed us in the world in these particular ways to exist in the church and the household and the state and that God works in our lives through these different orders of creation um, so that there is, no, there is no part of the world that God um, does not have a hand in, per se. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of what the doctrine of the two kingdoms is doing is saying, with regard to God's right hand, his word and the church, you have utter certainty about this thing. Um, there, there's no room for a lack of confidence in what God has done for you. But that frees you up to have a certain lack of certainty about life in the world and about particularly about the state. So what is Luther saying? Who is the king of the second kingdom? God. God is still the king of the second kingdom. It's right hand, left hand, yeah. God God is in control fully of both. Um, he has established rulers and all good laws are um, pointing to the law, as it were. Thank you for that. Is that loophole? Yeah, and it, when it becomes a sort of s- spiritual secular divide, or right. uh, you know, that, that, just, that just doesn't work. Yeah. No, that doesn't work that way. Come on, Hoggy, can you open that up a little bit? What do you mean when it becomes a spiritual and secular divide? Like, oh, like God's not in the world? Yeah, or, or that God can be removed from the public square or from um, public discourse. Um, Some people would say. Sorry, go ahead. No, well, I would just say some people would maybe not. I mean, I like how you said it, but some people would say God's grace reigns in the kingdom of the church, but only His sovereignty reigns in the kingdom, mm-hmm. the second kingdom, the civil kingdom, so to speak. And that's that's what I'm kind of trying to piece through. I think in broader Christianity, it looks more like Neoplatonism. You know what I mean? Not, not entirely. No. In other words, like body, earth, bad, soul, spirit, you know, oh, heaven, okay. good. Material is bad. Yeah. Right, gotcha, gotcha. We're, we're going to shed off this body. We're going to go to heaven, which is somewhere else. The earth's going to get torched, Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's our hope, is going somewhere else. That's losing the, you know, even when we were talking about gospel in heaven, uh, law on earth, you know, I was thinking about Jesus' prayer, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. That's where these things meet, Mm. you know. Mm. And in the incarnation and the hope, the fact that heaven's coming to earth. Right. That gets lost. I don't mean to continue to speak for broader evangelicalism, but that gets lost a lot. Yeah. Uh, so that's where, what you were saying, I think that's more of maybe a 
a reformed uh, in-house issue, or at least that language wouldn't be used. But where it's in broad, you know, it's the uh, left behind Christianity. It is is more broadly accepted, and in, in one that I think, even as a Lutheran or as a Reformed pastor, people coming in, they they have that mindset that you know this is not good. Yeah, I think we we continue fighting against that. Mm. I don't really know where to go from here. <laughs> One, one thing, one thing that I will comment on though is this uh, heaven and earth, civic use on earth, uh -huh. law, you know, on earth, civic use of law here on earth. It seems to kind of rub against the grain of what Luther says at other points, though, where he says, you know, we ought to be um, loving our neighbor, you know, in an effort to please God, you know. And so that to me, it's like, well, now you're making your, you know, everything you're doing on earth here kind of spiritual. You're, hmm. you're, you're, you're do, if you're doing your obedience in this kind of like spiritual realm, now my law, my obedience to the law of God on earth, I'm doing it with respect to something spiritual. You know, oh, I'm trying to please God here. And so it seems to, it, a lot of times I think it can come across with, you know, it's like, well, why are you loving me? Are you loving me because you want to help me fix my roof? Or just your ultimate aim here is really just to please God. And so I'm, your pawn, I'm the pawn of making you feel good about pleasing God. Right. So that, like, I appreciate the commentary when I hear this because I'm very stark. Two kingdoms, you know, heaven and earth. Yes, heaven's dealt with. God's been satisfied with Christ. Our relationship's secure. And so, in my day-to-day -day activity, it's like I'm thinking at least, cool. I can serve my neighbor without even reference to pleasing God. It's just, you know, because that's it. It's an end in itself. You know. Mm -hmm. And it's totally civic. It's not spiritual at all since that's dealt with and that's in the heaven. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like here he's solid and on point, but in other places it kind of rubs it. It's like, well, what? That's mm -hmm. why on the Freedom of the Christian, I was, you know, making so many faces and, you know, everything. <laughs> Getting my sad face. And I get what you're saying. Um, because I, I think I always repeat this, because we are justified, we are, we are set free from that, we have nothing that we need to give him. We don't have anything to give him, and he has nothing to get from us. So in that sense, you do our, we do our works for the neighbor um, without looking to give things to God. It's just to give something to the neighbor. But we're doing it because of that. You know, that, I think that's where we can't make... Um, you can't drive those two things apart in that sense. Like, the logic behind it is, I can do this for you because, because I have been set free in this way. I think we've talked enough about uh, sort of what happens in pages 61 to 63, uh, basically how, how Luther interprets um, the Antioch event is just that Peter has confounded law and grace, he, law and gospel. He's mixed the two. Um, and Paul has to come in there and remind him of the truth of the gospel, that you're not justified by being either Jew or Gentile. Um, and, and then that releases you, or it sets us all on a playing field where 
the Jew can't eat with the Gentile. Like the, those sort of boundaries are broken. Um, we're gonna let's let's shift tact for just a minute. Um, want to go into the Bible itself? Um, want to have you read two Samuel twelve? Read what? Two Samuel or Second Samuel twelve? I'm trying to be all British. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens every now and then. And just and just verses one, um, two to fifteen or so. And the the, the question that we're sort of getting at, um, let me find it. It says in, in on Galatians three five, um, where Paul says, "He therefore that ministers to you by the Spirit." Age uh, one twenty two. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Luther says, When a preacher then so preaches that the word is not fruitless, but effectual in the hearts of the hearers, that is to say, when faith, hope, love, and patience do follow, then God gives the Spirit and works miracles in the hearers. Um, And I want to look at 2 Samuel 12 as an example of Law gospel preaching. Have you ever read it in that vein before? Okay. Well, let's take a few minutes and just reread it, then I want to talk about that. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.